Amen. Amen. Well, church, you may be seated. It is wonderful, such a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Trent Egbert. I'm one of our lay elders here. I've uh, been an elder for about three, three or so years. Uh, I'm here with my wonderful family, my wife, Shana. They're somewhere here in the crowd. There they are. My, my girls told me to give them a shout out, uh, two girls and, and Nolan downstairs. Um, and, and church, it's just, it's been uh, such a pleasure to be in our Texas uh, this morning for this week and just being preparing and, and being reminded of uh, our roadmap that, that Christ has given us and how we are to look different uh, than the world, but that how only we can do that in him. And so it's just stirred up my love for us and this noble calling um, that we have before us. So if you would, let's read the text again. We're going to actually read the full passage, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 5, 1 through 12, reading out of the CSB version. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, perse who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Our sin is great, but your love is greater. We thank you, God, for your word, this, this beautiful roadmap that you give us uh, to be distinct, to, to recognize our citizenship is not here in this world, but in something so much greater, so much more satisfying, God. I pray that we would hear these words as grace-filled words. There's nothing we can do. There's no bootstraps we can pull up to, to affect these in our own lives, but it's only by the power of your Holy Spirit, God. But then what a joy it is to walk inside these. And you call us blessed. You call us joy. You, you give us joy, a, a sense of, of peace and happiness despite our circumstances. So I thank you, God, that you have given us your word today. May it be upon our lips. May it be clear uh, the path that we're to take. And if anything is not of you, I pray that it would fall to the ground. It's only by your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Now, last week, uh, Dahati started our two short two-week series uh, on a roadmap to repentance uh, that's going to lead us, starting next week, into our series uh, on Blueprints DNA and really what is our unique identity as a local church. He started in Matthew 4, 17, which says, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. He talked about how repentance isn't simply saying we're sorry or regretting what happened or feeling toxic shame or just, you know, behavioral modification. No, he gave us a threefold definition of repentance. Changing our minds and actions, confessing and telling the truth about what is going on inside, and clinging to God's kingdom. Changing, confessing, and clinging. And the only way we can practice true repentance is by first acknowledging our sin. 
like we just sang. Our sin is great, but your love is greater. An old pastor memorably said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. We all struggle with sin and will continue to do so until Christ's return. But repentance is our friend. It reminds us of our limitations and our desperate need for a Savior. It reminds us to look to the love and grace that has been lavished upon us. It's Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ultimately, repentance reminds us of the gospel. So much of the Christian life is not about doing, but about being about being a son or daughter who rests and dwells with our perfectly he- perfect Heavenly Father. And Dottie closed by saying, when we recognize our need due to our sin, and then we repent as a result, we produce fruit. And these fruits of God's people are shocking. They're things that we would not choose on our own. They're countercultural. But God's economy and what he values is so much different than this world's. This morning, we're going to continue to follow this roadmap by looking closer at this fruit that Jesus said his people will be known by. Now, there's a TV show called The Chosen. Uh, It's been running for a while now. I'd highly recommend it to you because what I love about it is that in this, this show, you get to really see and feel the heart of Christ. Right? Jesus describes his heart in Matthew 11, 29. He says, take my yoke and learn from me. Because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for my souls. And we see that. We see his, his lowly, his humble, his meek, his, his caring heart. So I want to begin our time this morning by showing you a quick scene from the show, The Chosen, uh, between Jesus and his disciple Matthew, who's the author of our text this morning. Let's watch. If people want to find me, those are the groups they want to look for. The Beatitudes are a roadmap for the church to pursue Christ in a broken world. These eight Beatitudes are the marks we are to be known by, and when we're known by them, we are set apart and attract those that God is calling him to join his family. Now, one thing I must make absolutely clear before we dive into these Beatitudes is very simple. Obedience to these Beatitudes will not save you. Even if you could uphold all of them, which you cannot, but if you could, it still wouldn't be enough. One of the primary sects of Judaism during this time were the Pharisees, and they were known for their strict adherence to the law, for their their obedience. But Jesus says to them in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. See, the Beatitudes, they don't care about appearances, outside appearances. They're getting at the heart level. God knows we cannot uphold this law or these beatitudes, and that is why Jesus came. He was and will always be the only way we can perfectly satisfy the law in these beatitudes. Salvation is given only by grace alone, through faith alone, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the beatitudes are not a form of law, but a roadmap. A roadmap to guide us along the narrow path, identify where we fall short, repent, and ask for his power to be transformed. And when by grace we are transformed, these beatitudes set us apart from the world, displaying our new life in Christ. So let's dive into this roadmap for the church to pursue Christ in a broken world. When we look at the structure of our our passage, commentators pose a couple different ways at at grouping the beatitudes. Probably the most common is to say the first four uh, really um, relate to our relationship with God, and then the second four relate to our relationship with one another. But for this morning, and looking at the beatitudes as a roadmap, 
uh, I found the grouping proposed by Martin Lloyd-Jones in his masterful work, Studies on the Sermon of the Mount, to be very insightful. So we're going to look at the first three Beatitudes as a grouping of our need. And then, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is our North Star on our roadmap. And then a second group of three Beatitudes that focuses on the result of that North Star and being filled in Christ. And then finally, we'll close with verses 10 through 12 as an outcome of following this roadmap. Now let's dive in with verses 1 through 3. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. See, a beautiful aspect of Scripture being the Word of God, divinely inspired, is that there's a purpose, there's an order to it. Again, these first three Beatitudes, they're focused on our need, right? And the very first Beatitude we see here, that's where we have to start. For all the other seven Beatitudes that come after, they rest upon it. To be poor in spirit means to see our impossible state in which we are unable to meet God's righteous standard. It is to recognize our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy. It does not mean you are weak or lacking courage, but rather a right view of our hopeless state. And over and over again in Scripture, we see God eager to meet us when we are in this state. Psalm 72.12 says, For he will rescue the poor who cry out and the afflicted who have no helper. John Newton captures this dynamic beautifully. He says, Like sheep, we are weak, destitute, defenseless, prone to wander, unable to return, and always surrounded with wolves. But all is made up in the fullness, ability, wisdom, compassion, care, and faithfulness of our great shepherd. He guides, he protects, he feeds, he heals, and he restores, and he will be our guide and our God even until death. Then he will meet us, receive us, and present us unto himself, and we shall be near him and like him and with him forever. See, that is the promise that is attached to this beatitude of being poor in spirit, that we receive the kingdom of God. We inherit a better kingdom than anything we can achieve on our own. More of God and more of his riches and his glory. We do not belong to the kingdom of the world, which would say that this is foolish to be poor in spirit. The world would say you just need to affirm yourself, trust in yourself, be yourself. But no, that is the opposite of what we see for the body of Christ. And the funny thing is, is while the world may scoff at this, Uh, being poor in spirit, deep down it is attractive because for sin infects all of us and we know things are not how they should be in our world today. Dahadia said, authenticity is the apologetic of our day. When we as the body of Christ are authentically poor in spirit, it attracts people to the gospel and all of our need for something bigger than ourselves to save us. So get verse four. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Here we see the clear order of the scripture again. For what is a natural progression if you recognize that you're poor in spirit? It's to mourn the sin that puts you in that poor state to begin with. Now, mourning sin is different than acknowledging sin. We're often great at acknowledging sin and then moving on, either with a sense of works righteousness of, oh, well, I just have to do better. I just need to stop doing this sin. Or a licentiousness of, oh, it's it's been forgiven. A get out of hell free card. It's been forgiven. I don't need to worry about it. But neither of these reflect mourning. Also, comparison to others is often the enemy of mourning. We compare ourselves to others instead of comparing ourselves to the word, and this dilutes the problem that we're truly facing. 
It's kind of like thinking that you're saving money when you're buying something that's on sale when you don't need that thing to begin with. It gives us a false sense of security or accomplishment. So if that's what mourning is not, what do we most associate mourning with? It's death, is it not? Mourning at a funeral? And is that not the same state that we're in when it comes to our spiritual sin? Sin prevents us from meeting God's perfect standard and enjoying right relationship with him. But notice the promise that's attached to it. It's not that our sin will be resolved this side of heaven. No, it's they will be comforted. Comforted by the perfect Savior. See, when we sin and if we put our faith in Christ for salvation, God's primary response is mercy. He is like a father with a sick child. He isn't angry or, or careless at his child for being sick, but rather he's eager to take that sickness upon himself. And he did this by sending Jesus to die for the sickness of sin within us. Verse 5, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Now, the CSB translates this as humble, but other translations, including the scene we just saw, uh, uses the word meek, right? And it's not a word that we often use today. Tony, Tony Evans defines it clearly as meekness simply means submitting your power to a higher control. It means submitting yourself to God's kingdom rule. And once again, the order here, it matters. You cannot be a meek person if you are not first poor in spirit and vitally aware of your own sin. And in relation to the others, it cannot often be seen as an attitude of caring more about the other person, or I'm sorry, it can, meekness can also be seen as an attitude of caring more about the other person, not, caring as, not thinking as much about yourself, being teachable and able to be corrected. James 1.19, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. But a beautiful and paradoxical, act, paradoxical aspect of meekness or humility is that no one should be able to bring you down. Because no matter how poorly one thinks of you, you know deep within that you're much worse. Do a thought experiment for me real quick. What if all of your thoughts over just the last 24 hours we're just scrolling on this screen. Think about that. Well, make sure you get to the juicy stuff. All right? Now think about the neighbor next to you. Do you think that that person would think more highly or, or less of you? Of course it's less. We all know this. We all know that deep down there are some ugly things within us, within me, that, if, that makes us squirm if we think about it too long. And there is a problem with the church and how often we put on a self-righteous attitude when we should, in fact, be the ones who are most aware of our sin, when we should be, in fact, the ones who are the only people with us, who know we are the only people with a Savior who loves us regardless and makes a way for our sin to be forgiven. It's like Deuce preached about two weeks ago in Amos 5. Why would you want justice if you looked in the mirror? So with this brief look at these first three Beatitudes, they show us our desperate need for a Savior. They are roadmap markers that Christ gave us to show us what his kingdom should look like here on earth. And it's only here when we have a right view of ourselves that we can then look at the next beatitude. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Now this is not righteousness in the justification sense. We already talked about that. How only by the righteousness of Christ we are saved, but rather this is righteousness in the sanctification sense. A lifelong, sanctification is a lifelong pursuit of holiness and a denial of idols. See, sanctification is like this mathematical concept of an asymptote, right? And, and bear with me here, I definitely had to look this up. 
because I had no, really no clue, but I remember this image back in school, and it, and it, it set so well here. And it's defined as a line that continually approaches a given curve, but does not meet it at a finite distance. See, sanctification is like that curve, getting closer and closer to righteousness as we mature as believers and look more like Christ, but we never reach that perfect standard. Jesus is not calling his people to achieve righteousness, for he knows it is impossible because of sin, but rather an intense pursuit of it, a, 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 an endeavoring for it. And in the opposite way, if you remember the illustration from last week that Dahadi used about as we grow in maturity, the, the gap between our perfect standard or Christ's perfect standard and, and who we are, it grows. And only as the cross grows do we, are we filled, are we satisfied. So in a way, this asymptote is reversed, right? Where you're kind of, you see yourself as you grow and you mature as farther and farther away from God's standard. And as you're following this illustration up here, this is the focal point. The, the, the pursuit of um, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, this is our North Star because it's what we actively set our minds on. Hunger and thirst are active words. You do something. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. The three Beatitudes before and the four that follow are more about character and who we are. But here we get something we actually get to do. John Bloom shows how the spirit of action is found all throughout Scripture. He says, Christians must, graciously, must be graciously aggressive when it comes to the way we live. Words like striving in Hebrews, straining in Philippians, self-denial, fighting, whatever it takes, and courage are not for our lips only. They are words of behavioral action, and they are words of grace, not works righteousness. And what is the promise attached to this verse? It's that we will be satisfied. Revelation 7, 16 through 17 they will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb, who is at the center of the throne, will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living water, of waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the North Star on our roadmap. Again, we cannot do it on our own. That's why it's number four and not number one. But as we live our lives, we want to be constantly recalibrating our hunger and thirst to pursue righteousness. John Piper says it so well. If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with the small things and there is no room for the great. If we are full of what the world offers, then perhaps a fast might express or even, even increase our soul's appetite for God. If you're a Christian in here this morning and you walk out of here with just one thing, please let it be this. Pursue a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is vital to our spiritual lives and it produces so many amazing results. This can look like joining a city group, surrounding yourself with, like, with people who are, are pursuing the same thing. It could be intensely and actively reading and praying through scripture. We did a Bible study last year, and I was so encouraged by one of our members, Lee, who had printed out, you know, the text that we were studying. And he had it all marked up and, and just, you know, had, you could tell he wrestled through it. And he talked about just how it forced him to slow down and really chew on, really hunger and thirst after the text. Or maybe it's an act of service, joining a ministry team here, or intentionally pursuing a friend, neighbor, or coworker. These are actions we can choose to pursue that lead to our own satisfaction because they are how our created creator intended us to live. And when you fail, because you will, 
take it to the Lord, repent, and try again. You know, last time I was up here, I uh, preached about cultivating maximum taste for Christ, which is very similar uh, to this idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And I use this example of, you know, not binge-watching Netflix. Do you know what I did that very Sunday night after getting home? I binge-watched Stranger Things season four, and it was great, but that's not, that's not what we're saying here. This is not about living a monastic lifestyle, but it's about walking humbly, repenting when we go astray, and continuing our pursuit of righteousness. Now, the first three Beatitudes have shown us our desperate need, and then verse six, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, was our North Star, and that results in us being filled, being satisfied. So now we will turn to the results that happen as a result of that satisfaction. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. See, mercy is a sense of of pity that leads to a desire to relieve the suffering. This is beautifully displayed in Matthew 18 with the parable of the unforgiving servant. The servant is forgiven by the king an incalculable, an incalculable debt. In today's terms, it's about $6 billion. But then he turns around and does not forgive someone who owed him $12,000. When the king finds out about this, he says, shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? See, we often want mercy from others when we offend, but justice for others when they wrong us. Sadly, this leads the church to be more known for its self-righteousness than its mercy. But think about all the other Beatitudes before. If we really wrestled with those, we should not feel better than any others, but pity, love, awareness that we're no better. In fact, we are far worse than anyone knows. Remember all your thoughts up on the screen? This is why this Beatitude comes after the first four. It is only when we recognize our poor state that we owe a debt greater than $6 billion that only Christ can satisfy. Then by grace, we can show the same mercy that we have been shown. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Throughout scripture, pure has two primary meanings. First is this idea of integrity, this sense of alignment, unity. You do what you say you will do. In Psalm 86, 11, David prays, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. And also this idea of being clean, undefiled, pure. Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, talking about heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. And our heart, in the biblical sense, is not just our emotions, as we, our culture typically thinks about it, but really our whole being. It's our decision maker, our intellect, it's even our personality. And these hearts of ours are by default sinful, and the root of all of our problems. So you can see why the Beatitudes are not a law that we must follow, because none of us can meet these standards every hour, much less over a lifetime, but rather a result of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We see this play out in so many people in the, in the Bible. See, God calls David a man after his own heart, despite David deceitfully committing adultery and murder. God calls David that not because of David's righteousness, but because of his faith in the righteousness and mercy of God. Hear David's prayer in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is what it looks like to be pure in heart. In verse nine, we come to our final beatitude in this second group of three. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, peace, sadly, is such a rarity in our world today. 
There's so much division across every aspect of our, of our culture, and we're bombarded with it uh, in 24-7 news cycles and social media. But what we see in the text is not just the concept of peace, but the application of it. The Greek word here translates to endeavor to reconcile. Similar to hunger and thirsting for righteousness, the body of Christ should be known by their endeavoring, their intense pursuit of peace. And why? Because Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As children of God justified by faith, we should be known by this because we were once enemies of God and are now reconciled to him as friends. Being a peacemaker reflects the heart of God to a broken world. Church, we were made for this. Being true peacemakers sets us apart from the world and at the same time is attractive. And blueprint specifically, oh, the Lord has prepared us to be peacemakers, has he not? These seasons we have been through of late, they have made us poor in spirit, aware of our need and our inability to resolve it based on our own time and talent. They've caused us to mourn our sin. They have humbled us. They have led us to a stronger pursuit of righteousness. They have made us more merciful towards one another. They have purified us. And ultimately, they have pointed us to Jesus, the only example worth following. See, people are often attracted to Blueprint because of our diversity. But the beauty about the diversity at Blueprint is it's never been one of our primary aims, as we'll talk about uh, in August. It's the result of pursuing these marks that Jesus has called us to. Again, as Dottie has said, authenticity is the apologetic of our day. The world talks a lot about healthy diversity, but these Beatitudes show us that we are unable to do it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. As Deuce quoted C.S. Lewis a couple weeks ago, we need God, not something that resembles him. One way we want to put this into practice the elders of Blueprint have begun the process of forming and implementing a peacemaking ministry that will be a group of people and processes that encourages and allows biblical application of peacemaking within our church. We're eager to grow from our shortcomings and pursue this noble calling. Now, even though peace is attractive to the world, Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker who gave up everything in order to make peace for us. And where did that land him? Death on a cross. Which leads us to our final beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, this final beatitude is placed at the bottom of our roadmap. Because it's not something we necessarily pursue, but rather it's an outcome of a life lived in pursuit of the other seven Beatitudes. Remember what Dahadi said last week? God's economy is different than the world's. This is not our final home. So the things we hunger and thirst for, they should be different than the world's. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, and un, you, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. God is pleased when his people show that they value him above everything in the world. And this happens when they courageously remain faithful amid opposition for righteousness' sake. See, persecution for righteousness reminds and encourages us that we are indeed Christians, and we are promised something so much greater. God calls us to endurance now, but exaltation later. James 1.12, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those 
who love him. So now that we see the full roadmap here, uh, I want to make one final observation. If you draw these dotted lines uh, across the first group of, from the first group of three to the second group of three, you see yet another way in which Jesus is showing our dependence on him. For you cannot be merciful to others if you are not first poor in spirit and recognize your desperate need for mercy. You cannot be pure in heart if you do not mourn your sin and recognize your need for God to create in you a new pure heart. And you cannot be a peacemaker unless you pursue humility, become quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. These roadmap markers are our opportunity to show the world something greater, to show the kingdom of God in such a way that makes God look glorious for without his grace and sending his son to be the perfect example of all these qualities, we would be utterly hopeless. Remember the asymptote. This isn't a law that you can achieve, but a roadmap to be followed more and more closely as we grow in grace. Matt Chandler calls the Beatitudes a spiritual mirror for us to gaze into and pull where we fall short into his presence and ask for his power to be transformed. We were made for this blueprint, especially in this age of polarization and division. This informs our DNA and who we are as a local church. This is our roadmap to pursue Christ in a broken world. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. None of this is possible apart from the Holy Spirit. He enables and produces these beatitudes within us. And we have the perfect example in Jesus who fulfilled all of these beatitudes perfectly. So when you look at that North Star on the map, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we are not merely looking at a concept or an idea, but a man. A man who suffered the greatest persecution of all time and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God so that we may also be citizens of his glorious kingdom. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus the pioneer, perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you. You are the pioneer. You are the perfecter. You are the fulfillment of all these things. You are the fulfillment of the law that the Pharisees tried to obey um, but where did that get them? That got them being hypocrites. That got them looking down. That taught them uh, not connecting their minds and their thoughts with their actions, God. It got them as not merciful, not having pity and looking to relieve and, and seek to serve others. God, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot pull up our bootstraps and do these things. God, we are so far away from the standard that you perfectly set, but the beauty, the hope, the joy that comes from resting in you is that you do it all. God, may we be more like you. May we be in community that loves you more than anything else. Like Piper said, this isn't about loving something too much this is, or loving, loving God not enough. It's about we, we get crowded out with things that we love too much that take the place that blind our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of your love. Because again, you're like a perfect father who, who looks at our sickness, who looks at all that we fall short, and you have mercy. You show grace. You continue to show your steadfast love. So we thank you, God, that you have made a way. It's only by your son that we pray. It's in his name. Amen.
Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.